The CIUT Fall Fundraiser begins on air on November 13th. Show some love to your favorite programmers by helping us meet our financial goal this season. Donate now at www.ciut.fm. On air on November 13th. Show some love to your favorite programmers by helping us meet our financial goal this season. Donate now at www.ciut.fm. At Sellers and Newell, we offer you poems in thin little volumes and honking great tomes. We're proud of our poetry just inside the door. Two full bookcases from ceiling to floor. We've elegies, odes, and limericks as well as haiku and sonnets and the odd villanelle. And also a heck of a lot of free verse. Sellers and Newell Secondhand Books, 672 College, and SellersandNewell.com. Great books and iambic pentameter. From the roots up, CIUT 89.5 FM, Toronto. November 4th at Sellers and Newell's second and welcome. Uh, you are listening to a very live radio. Yes, it still does exist in the city here at CIUT 89.5 FM. And this is the Radical Reverend Show. And I am she, or at least one of them, Sherry DeNovo. And I want to welcome uh, the other one of them, Christine Smaller, Reverend Christine Smaller to the show. Chris, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for those of you who don't know Chris, and you should know Chris, um, she hosted all summer long, which was exciting, and uh, and it will host again, I'm sure. Uh, but now, welcome as a guest. Uh, how does that feel? <laughs> it feels awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so today's Halloween. Yay, Halloween. Yep. Um, it was All Saints. It's All Saints Day yesterday, but most churches on Sunday celebrated All Saints Day as we did. Um, so I thought we could talk about the subject nobody wants to talk about, and that is death. Um, one of the things that I said on Sunday is that something that we in faith communities, all faith communities have in common, is that we do talk about it because uh, we have quite a death-denying culture, even if it meets out a lot of it. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, we definitely live in a death-denying culture. And, you know, because we deny death, we really can't live fully. So it's a huge problem. Um, I, I, I told some stories about, you know, funerals that I have done um, from the sublime to the ridiculous. But I remember one uh, was uh, a Blue Jays fan, and, and about three-quarters of the way through, they did a seventh-inning stretch they wanted to do and <laughs> sang, you know, the Blue Jays theme song um, to, uh, you know, having to bury a, a baby where the casket could fit on my lap. And you oh, must have oh. similar stories in your many years of ministry, Christine. Yes, and it's something that we ministers love to do or faith leaders love to do is to share our stories about about funerals and weddings. Um, you know, it's, it's funerals are really our most meaningful ministry, I think, and I think you heard that from a lot of faith leaders. It's where we meet people, where they're, you know, everyone's stripped bare, and it's a time of just incredible honesty and vulnerability and, you know, potential for connection. So, yeah, so funerals. Um, I think one of my favorite funerals um, was the Johnny Cash funeral, um, everything was, was Johnny Cash related, including the music. And I think the only time I've ever refused, uh, a particular song to be played during a funeral was when someone requested Highway to Hell. <laughs> yeah, I, can, <laughs> I understood I can see the that. sentiment, but could not condone it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes absolute sense. So let's let's talk. Let's go there. Let's talk about um, highways to hell or heaven. I mean, biblically. I mean, people. You know, one of the things that folk who've never kind of or not recently stepped foot in a church or other faith place um, seem very um, concerned about is the thought that we do condemn people. Um, we right. elevate them to heaven or we condemn them to hell. Talk about the theology, basically, Christine. Enlighten us. 
Oh, sure. In three minutes? Do you want me to discover both the theology of heaven and hell? You can take as long as you want. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Well, I think that, you know, one thing that I think needs to be said is that people think about heaven and hell. So regardless of your background, um, I think that it's something that we think about, even if we outwardly would say, you know, we don't believe in that, or it's not important to think about. I think people are always thinking about um, heaven or hell, what happens um, after death, and how our, you know, our actions or our beliefs um, have an impact on what happens to us after death. So, biblically, when we're talking about the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, there just isn't a lot of talk about the afterlife at all. It's very much, Jesus very much talked about uh, living in the present and, you know, how we could live differently together in a way that would bring, you know, what he sometimes called kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth, which really meant for Jesus that, you know, everyone had enough to eat um, and were, you know, had warm clothing and were treated with respect and that they were fully, fully included in community. But I think... You know, when I talk about it, when I'm asked to, I just say, you know, I, I do believe there's something more. There's a moreness to life. There's things that, you know, that we cannot see or explain. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, ghosts or things that go knock in the night. But you just think about how you feel, you know, emotions, love, for example, how there's something so much more about love than we can really explain. What do you think? <laughs> um, what do you think, Sherry? Yeah, uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, and uh, we're speaking. It's Halloween, so we're of course speaking about things that uh, do go knock in the night. Maybe um, All Saints, uh, and well, first of all, All Saints. I mean, just to unpack that a little bit. Uh, since the Reform, certainly the Reformers felt that there was a priesthood of all believers, so you didn't need a priest to speak to God, right. um, and that we were all saints and sinners both, right? So um, that's who we are. I mean, when you look at the saints uh, that we name our churches after, for example, um, say the the disciples, most of them, um, Paul, for example, was killed Christians uh, until he got knocked off his horse. And uh, so th- this wasn't about you know, being a perfect person or anything close to it. It was more a kind of directional thing. Like, who did you follow? Where did, you know, where did you look? Um, what direction were you going? Um, so there's that. Uh, and and hell, I mean, Old Testament, um, Hebrew scriptures um, uh, are, you know, it's really a place outside of town, right? It's the garbage dump at Shoal. Um, it's... It's where okay. you you dumped the body who didn't nobody knew and nobody loved and nobody wanted to celebrate you know, um, so that's and that's a pretty good definition of hell I think um, it's a you know garbage dump for human beings, um, but uh, yeah heaven I mean I we've all had a little experience of it right we get glimpses of it for sure, <laughs> um, yeah so I mean. Uh, and so this idea that like there's a time of year when I mean I kind of like it that you know we're a little closer to to the reality of what is not alive you know the other side um, than other times of year and so that's this period of time um, and uh, and people share stories of course I mean you must have heard stories I mean I've heard lots of them and I've experienced some of them I think you know. Um, like poltergeisty kind of stuff from people who have passed on or like little signs. I mean, I just did an internment um, where he was very into uh, Second Second World War planes. And as we were doing it, and we were in the cemetery, a Lancaster, this old Second World War plane flew over, you know. <laughs> and it was, yeah. it was pretty uncanny, you know. It was like, hmm, okay, um, there's a flyover. <laughs> Yeah, for this one, yeah. Um, and and it's a cause for laughter usually, which is a good thing um, to celebrate somebody's life. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, stuff like that. Any experience of that, Christine? Yeah, like all of these. Well, and that's that's the whole thing. Like you think about, like I think of um, you know All Hallows Eve, Halloween, and then All Saints Day the next day, 
as a thin place in the calendar. So you think about all the thin places in the world, these places like, you know, Iona and, um, you know, other places, certainly places in Canada where people feel like they go there and they can experience something more, as I was saying, but something about the next world or a different world or the saints that have gone beyond us. And I think that that's, you know, the original the original um, focus of what Halloween came from, Samhain, which was, you know, a Celtic, uh, a Celtic festival, was the time when that's what they felt like. They felt that they could, there was a portal that opened up where the, the people could really connect with um, those who had gone before, so those that they had loved and lost. And, you know, that, of course, was sort of adopted, co-opted by Christians in, you know, the 6th century. It was, and, you know, Christianized. But it's still got that very wild, very raw feeling to it that, you know, anything can happen and that, you know, there is something from beyond that we can tap into. You, by the way, just came back from walking a little stretch of the Camino. Talk about yes. that. <laughs> well, I think the Camino is a thin place for sure. It's you know, it's and what makes a thin place? You know, is it the beauty, the rugged beauty, the majestic beauty of it, or is it the fact that people have been doing something, particularly ritually, there for thousands of years? So, as you know, because you walk the Camino as well, I mean, for you know, over a thousand years, people have been doing a pilgrimage over the same, you know, road, path, steps, and there's something about that, you know, just that that constant perpetual groove that makes something, you know, very spiritual. And so the Camino is a spiritual place and, you know, a thin place where people come and, you know, they come because they want to celebrate and give thanks and they come because they have terrible questions they need to answer. They come because they're heartbroken and there's something that happens on the journey for them that is, you know, often very remarkable as you know, the people that you met, you know, people get solace and people get answers and people, you know, form incredible relationships. Speaking to uh, Reverend Christine Smaller, um, the other radical reverend out there, uh, one of them, but but certainly the one that uh, holds it down here at the radio show when, uh, when I'm not here. Uh, and we're talking on this Hallow's Eve on Halloween about um, what it's all about. Anything else about this day, Christine, that comes to mind for you? What does it bring <laughs> Well, I can remember when, um, on a long time ago, on an All Saints Sunday, when you were preaching, and my daughter was very little, and for children's time, which is the time when, you know, faith leaders often gather the, the young people in the, in the faith hall to talk about what's going on that day, you gathered all the little children and you had a mirror and you said, what does a saint look like? And, you know, the kids started talking about all sorts of things. You know, they're really tall or they're really strong or they have angel wings, all those things. And then you took out a mirror and you invited them to look into the mirror and you said, this is what a saint looks like. And I think that's one of the most important things about, you know, this time is to really, really acknowledge in such a deep way that we are all saints, you know, that we're all beloved by God, and also that we all have, you know, the power to make change in the world, which really, for me, is one of the fundamental definitions of a saint. As always, uh, on this face of this earth, uh, we're living in a time of war. Um, I don't think it's ever not been that. Um, for any All Hallows Eve, but um, it feels particularly close now that we're mm -hmm. all, um, you know, kind of feeling a little, some of us anyway, feeling a little impotent and in shock about sure. uh, the Holy Land. Um, but uh, but also just generally, and I, um, uh, and it, 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 but, and also I, I do want to give a shout out to um, uh, if anybody's going to be on Church Street tonight, uh, haven't been there for decades, but thought I'm going to venture forth because 
there is a parade. I hope it's as uh, great as it used to be. Um, I'm told that it is of great costumes <laughs> on Church mm-hmm. Street. So it's always been a very special night for queer folk. Um, yeah. uh, because it was a time you could get away with, especially for trans, non-binary and gender non-conforming folk, you could get away with dressing up. You could get away with putting on clothes that didn't fit your gender. Gender stereotypes. Right. So let's like give a shout out to the, you know, Halloween being that holiday too, um, which is which is kind of fun and exciting. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's you know celebrating the possibility of transformation, or alternatively, it's about you know when we think about the you know spirits coming forth on All Hallows Eve and having the whole night to roam around where they, you know, where they used to to live and be. It's a night where you can actually show your real self, even though it doesn't look like uh, what society wants it to look like. Uh, one of the things, and and really, it's, it's a chance just to think of, you know, all the shoulders we stand on, too. You know, if you're, if you're in a faith institution, usually it's been built a long time ago, and... Uh, and I always think of the people that were sitting in those pews, you know, a hundred years ago or whenever. Well, you were on the Camino, so you can see people yeah. that were sitting in those pews like hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years ago. Um, and, uh, and and it's like they're built into the place because we all know what goes into keeping those places alive. Um, it's a lot. So so there's that. And But just whatever field you're in, all those people that went before you, all those people, yeah. your, your educational system is based on the history of whatever that field of study is. So there's this long train of of ghosts, if you will, of saints. Right, yeah, the cloud of saints, the cloud of witnesses <laughs> and saints that, you know, surround us at all times. I mean, that we, you know, many people do feel that. You know, they talk about those who, who surround them and who empower them, who they turn to the ancestors, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that we do need to also talk about, um, you know, how, you know, Halloween and Samhain and the the rituals and celebrations around this time relate to the Wiccan faith. Mm, yes, uh, Because mm-hmm. it's important. So I'll give you an example of what's happened recently with me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of an organization that provides spiritual care to uh, places of care in, um, in the region that I live in. And, uh, you know, some of the members of the organization did, want, did not want to have anything to do with Halloween. In fact, wanted um, to speak out against Halloween as being um, pagan and, you know, anti-religious. And I think that it's important to really confront and combat that kind of thinking um, for a number of reasons, um, not the least of which are, you know, I mean, if you don't use the word pagan unless you understand what it means, um, but also that the Wiccan faith and, you know, other faith traditions uh, do have celebrations around this time that are valid and important, and we need to be, you know, knowledgeable and welcoming of that. Absolutely. And and also, hey, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> it can be fun. It can really be fun. So where are you now? Are you in the country or are you down? I'm to, in the country. In no, the I'm country. in the country. Yeah. You're in the country. Yeah. So what does it look like there? You know, because so you so uh, Reverend Christine Smaller, I'm talking to, actually lives a couple of hours, you know, outside of Toronto, as many people do. Um, and what does it look like there that's different from what it looked like when you lived downtown? Well, there's lots of similarities. So I was downtown recently, and there was lots of great decorations, you know, in apartment windows and on front lawns, um, as there is here, too. I think that from what I see over the last years that I've been out here, I'm still a newbie when it comes to living in, in rural life, but it's very much a community event. So uh, but I'm sure part of that is practicalities. Where I live, the houses are very far apart, and little toddler legs cannot walk uh, to very many houses. So each of the little towns and villages often have some sort of of Halloween celebration, um, not necessarily on Halloween, but you know, in the days leading up to it. Um, families gather together. The churches uh, are very much involved in that as well, um, as they are, you know, in city areas too, for sure. 
And um, I do have to say that I don't know if it's a rural thing or if it is a money thing, but the, you know, the decorations and the costumes are much, you know, they're much more homemade out here than I see in the city, for sure. That's kind of sweet, though. I like that. It's very sweet. Like, you don't want a costume in a bag. That's not, that's not as good. (laughs) Well, shout out to all the busy single moms, though. Of course. <laughs> no yeah. choice than to buy, you know, a cheap, you know, plastic uh, costume. But yeah, for sure. And in during the pandemic, uh, most of the houses in this little village that I live in, they put a table out at the end of, you know, the long driveway with uh, some treats on it for the kids to, to come around. Yeah. I think that, you know, for me, I don't know what you, Sherry, but as people move away from being both uh, members of and participating in faith communities um, and other, like, service organizations, that these sort of rituals and events like Halloween become more and more important. You know, people who aren't going to church um, or, you know, aren't attending a faith community regularly aren't maybe, you know, celebrating their, you know, a, a particular faith, high holidays. Uh, that these events like like Halloween, you know, really are important to mark time and for people to, you know, gather together and, and as you say, do something fun and also create memories from year to year. Speaking to Reverend Christine Smaller here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you've just tuned in and we're talking about Halloween, um, and we're also talking about death because we're not shying away from that topic. Uh, We started off by talking about funerals that we have done, uh, celebrations of life, memorials, whatever you would like to call them. Um, And yeah, that's that's something that is very much part of the life of folk in um, organized faith communities or disorganized ones. Um, and, uh, And, you know, one of the things that that we did on Sunday, which is profoundly moving. I don't think there was a dry eye in the in the house. Is that we invite people to bring photographs of mm-hmm. or some memorabilia of people they've lost, loved and lost, and put it um, on the altar, and then uh, had a lot of little tea lights that people could come and light. Um, and that's one of the things kind of missing in a lot of lives, which is the chance to yes, we all will show up for you know, a funeral memorial uh, celebration of life, if it's somebody that we know and we're close to. But then what? Then is that the end of it? Like, is that it? Because, you know, in in terms of, you know, the cloud of witnesses around us is supposed to be a little closer at this time of year. Um, They're still there. I mean, we still remember them. Um, They're still part of our lives in a way. And we don't acknowledge that any other time but then. So just thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I think it's, you know, when we deny death, we're denying our own mortality, you know, just you know, pushing that fear of our own death deep, deep down, and we deny the death of others. And so we just, you know, stop talking about them. We don't remember them. And when we cannot have those, when, we were, when we're not able to feel um, fear and grief and lament, we actually cannot fear, we cannot feel joy or hope either. So, you know, unless we acknowledge, um, you know, our grief and really lean into it, there's no possibility of, of having real hope or joy. And I think this is particularly pertinent to us now, you know, of course, because of what's going on in the world, but also because of the COVID pandemic. I mean, have we really grieved all the death that we experienced, you know, in whatever ways we experienced them? You know, talk about, you know, the importance of funerals. We had three years where there was, there was no funerals, where people died alone without their family or without their faith leaders, without any spiritual care. And all of us are carrying this unacknowledged grief um, because we cannot accept that death is part of life. So maybe that's something, too, about Halloween and All Saints, is that at least we talk about death. Maybe we can start actually, you know, acknowledging it. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing up the pandemic because people don't. Um, no, and, uh, you know, it's we gone, lost, right? Yeah, happen. I know. Tens of thousands of people were lost. And where, you know, where, where's the statue? You know, where's the, where's the commemoration of all of those lives? Um, and it kind of, I mean, we really, 
as collectively as uh, as a country and not just us, um, but around the world, kind of denied that it ever happened. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, the great the flu pandemic, which was the other time, you know, in, in 1918. In 1918 I mean, yeah. I, nobody, I didn't really, most people didn't even know about that until the pandemic, our pandemic. And yeah. then people started talking about that one. And I'm thinking, where where's the literature that came out of it? I mean, it's mentioned here and there, but... Um, we collectively tend to deny all of that. So, yeah, and you know, it's it's so important. Just like you know, the rituals of funerals are important. Um, yeah, and I mean, I I have to say, like, I am just astonished that there's no there's been no public mourning. There's, as you say, statues, whatever you know, commemorations. Like millions and millions of people died around the world, and also. Um, you know, millions and millions of people died uh, for no reason, you know? I mean, it also highlights the incredible inequity around the world in terms of access to health care. And also, dare we say it, the, you know, part of mostly the West who will just deny everything. You know, I think that one of the saddest stories I heard from a colleague um, in the States was um, she was in Virginia, rural Virginia, and she was tending to congregants who were dying in the hospital of COVID, denying that COVID existed. Yeah. You know, um, and then having to, to preside at funerals where it could not be mentioned that there, you know, that there had been any illness. Yeah. And, uh, and sadly, that kind of denial still goes on. I mean, yeah. we, it, it's, it's also strange to me that every death is, treated as if it's accidental, almost, right. even if you're 99 years old, and you know, um, have had a lingering illness. Um, it's as if there is no such thing as a good death. So we just have a few minutes left. What, let's talk about what, what does a good death look like? I mean, what would that look like to you? Well, first of all, a good death um, is determined by the person who is dying. So it's about you know, a person who is dying having the opportunity to, you know, think with others who, you know, about how they want to die, where they want to die, when they want to die, who do they want there. And, you know, a good death, I think, absolutely requires, you know, good spiritual care. Um, and spiritual care does not have to be religious care, but spiritual care is, is something that really acknowledges and celebrates and understands that moreness of life. And spiritual care providers, particularly those who work um, in, with death, are able to be with people, to be fully present to people while they are dying, um, because most people are not able to do that because we have been socialized and conditioned by a death-denying culture. Yes. And so... Um to end on a more upbeat note on this <laughs> Halloween, um, what was in your life? What was your favorite Halloween costume, Reverend Christine Smaller? <laughs> um, I think my favorite costume was when my son, Richard, went um, to a Halloween party as me. <laughs> My robe and my collar and my stole. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and very connected to that, you can see what like incredible religious nerds we are, right, Sherry? <laughs> Is when I went um, to a church Halloween party as Martin Luther, um, wow. dressed up as an old, you know. Did you have the belly and the beard as well? <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the fake. Well, I had the fake beard. Yeah, but again, just use the same robe. <laughs> that's <cool>. great. <laughs> How about you? That, that's I, I don't I think uh, well I just posted it. I think I think my fa my favorite like the one I wore was like going as the you know ghost of Deputy Speaker Pass. Oh, at that I point, saw that yeah, I, I, at that, that point. Was I was the deputy, you know, I, I was the deputy speaker. Um, uh, but in terms of, I mean, I think that there have been other so many fun costumes over the years. Uh, um, 
But I mean, I, I remember, you know, one one costume, two people came to a Halloween party that had way, way back in the day, which was basically just, you know, a, a clothesline, like they stood apart from each other at the party. <laughs> and then this clothesline between them, you know, had like underwear and things hanging off it. Um, oh, that's hilarious. Which is pretty easy to get together if you're wondering what to do if you're going to party tonight. Anyway, I we, we are idea. out of time. So oh, thank, thank you, you so much. So fun uh, talking to Reverend Christine smaller all about death and halloween uh and now we're going to play that classic halloween tune that y'all know and we only get to play it this day and that is a monster mash <laughs> let's hear it for the monster mash For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the mash He did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash He did the mash It caught on in a flash He did the mash He did the monster mash From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abodes To get a jolt from my electrode They did the mash They did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash They did the mash It caught on in a flash They did the mash They did the monster mash The zombies were having fun The party had just begun the guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the mash. They played the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They played the mash. It caught on in a flash. They played the mash. They played the monster mash. Out from his coffin, Rex's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The monster mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the mash. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. Now everything's cool, Drax's a part of the band. And my monster mash is the hit of the land. For you, the living, this mash was meant to. When you get to my door, tell them what is sent. Then you can mash. Then you can monster mash. The monster mash. And do my graveyard smash. Then you can mash. You'll catch on in a flash. Then you can then you can monster mash. Mash! Yes, you Mash! And welcome back. Yeah, that uh, that tune only gets played today, so we played it. Uh, and I, I'm really delighted to have our ne next guest on. A, a bit of a change of topic here. Uh, Professor Frizzy, uh, Order of Canada recipient, uh, taught at TM University and uh, wrote and a poet. And I could go on and on about her, but uh, can I call you Catherine? Yes, of course, Mary. Uh, so, Catherine, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, and you are noted as being one of the prime voices for uh, the disability community, those who live with disabilities. Um, so maybe just, you know, uh, talk about your work a little bit before we, we get on to the topic. Sure. Um, I guess I... I think I, I found my my voice and my roots 
uh, on this and other issues during my time at the Ontario Human Rights Commission. I was the chief commissioner there from 1989 to 1991. I learned in 1992, I learned a great deal about the law of human rights, but also the ethics of human rights and the philosophy of human rights and why that... Uh, why that framing is so important to our our democracy and our civilized society. I come to this uh, work as someone with a lifelong disability, uh, quite a significant disability. I use a motorized wheelchair. I have um, assistance with all of the activities of daily living. The circumstances of my life are such that, you know, I was able to get an education, to, to work, to develop a satisfying career, and uh, to make sure that my basic needs uh, in life are met. But I'm very aware that that is the exception rather than the rule for people with disabilities, particularly for people with my level of disability in this country. And so I think those two threads of experience really have converged for me around the issue of um, medical assistance in dying, which has been the focus of my work for the past decade or so. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, that really has been the, the theme of, of this show on the Radical Reverend uh, show. Uh, we we want to talk about what people don't want to talk about here, and particularly this day on All Hallows' Eve, when um, you know when it's in the air, it, it you know comes out as my last guest mm-hmm. said, comes out of Celtic traditions and um, this tradition of when we're a little closer to death than we thought we think we are the rest of the year uh, for a variety of of reasons. But it's an opportunity to talk about it, and we have had medically assisted death now on the books in terms of policy for a while now in Canada. Um, maybe the first thing you could get uh, do for us, Professor, is maybe just talk about, because there's a lot of lack of knowledge out there, a lot of ignorance yeah. around this policy. What is the policy now in Canada? What does it look like? Oh, yeah. So and maybe I'll pick up where you left off, Jerry, because I think the general perception that people have about um, medical assistance in dying or made is the acronym that has been developed. The general public perception is that this is something in very rare cases for people who are at the end of their life and who are suffering tremendous pain and and hopelessness. And that's sort of how it started out. But the current policy in Canada, uh, and it's taken six, only six years to get here, is that we're now authorizing doctors and nurse practitioners, so medical professionals, to end the lives of people at any stage of life uh, who experience suffering, and that you could have many years to live, uh, you could, your, your fortunes could change, um, your circumstances uh, that are affecting your desire to die could change. This policy, uh, and it is an exemption, to the criminal code um, crime of homicide. This exemption applies only to medical practitioners, uh, so it empowers 
the medical profession, and it applies only uh, toward people who would fall under the definition of people with disabilities. So able-bodied people have no recourse, no access to a doctor uh, hastened death. We've limited it to disabled people, but we no longer require that they be at the end of their life. They could be in their early adult years. We don't require that they be in physical pain. We just require their statement that I'm suffering and I want to die. And people suffer when suffering is complex, right? People suffer for all sorts of reasons. Loneliness, for example, in 17% of cases uh, of made in Canada, people say they want to die because they're lonely. Now, we're about to have a major expansion of the law to permit uh, doctors to end the lives of people with mental health challenges who say, I've had enough, I want to die, and I want to die a painless, uh, comfortable death. This is also very worrisome, extremely worrisome, given what we know about uh, the mental health uh, challenges of indigenous people, racialized people, poor people, trans and gay people, particularly youth. And it's, it's as if we're not, as a society, having any of those conversations about whether this is really the direction we want to go and whether offering death is the best we have as a response to suffering, to human suffering in all of its forms. Speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Professor Frizzy, Order of Canada recipient, uh, prophet at TM University, uh, one of the foremost uh, voices for those in the disability community, and we're talking about medically assisted dying um, on a show that's focusing on on death um, on this All Hallows Eve. Um, I'm still reeling from that percentage. You said 17% their yeah. presenting symptom was loneliness. Loneliness. I mean, this is... This is shocking. Um, the other shocking thing that I've heard and that um, should shock us all and call to action is that for folk who many on disability are in Ontario disability, for example, in Ontario, yeah. um, which you cannot live on, <laughs> it's way below yeah. the poverty line, um, is that people who are just tired of living in yeah. dire poverty and yeah. want to die. Um have you heard? Uh, yeah. Oh, there are many cases. I've, I I um, uh, got to know a woman who was, her name was Ruth. She had um, multiple chemical sensitivities, was living in uh, subsidized housing that was making her symptoms much worse because it wasn't properly ventilated and smoke and chemical fumes were coming into her apartment from other apartments. Her health deteriorated, and she explained to me the efforts that she had made to secure either an improved ventilation system in her apartment or alternate housing. She had written letters and called for help for years until she finally, in despair, said, no, I, I can't tolerate this. I cannot live this way. 
and Steve died by maid. Uh, another individual who was featured in the media not too long ago was facing homelessness because his rent was going up. He had been homeless before, and he said, quite frankly, I'd rather die than live on the streets. He had a disability, but the disability wasn't the reason for his suffering. And, you know, we are kidding ourselves if we believe that this is a a medical response to a medical problem. It's not. There are deep social problems that we're all aware of and we're trusting, we're taking that uh, sort of deeply held culture of trust that we've had in our medical profession. And we're saying, look, you deal with it. If death is what they want, okay, go ahead. We're green lighting a practice that can only lead us into uh, a terrible, terrible loss of life, loss of opportunity, and the erosion of our commitment to care and concern for one another. Um, it, I mean, I'm sitting here still in shock about this. I, I, I am aware, of course, of that other voice that um, made itself politically heard over, you know, and struggled for years yeah. and years to get made, right, for those who yeah. really are suffering, really are at the end yeah. of life and really do cannot uh, do for themselves what they want done. Um, that's entirely different yeah. from what you are speaking about. Now, uh, you know, you've you've worked, in, in a sense, in government for the um, Human Rights Commission. Um, when you have these conversations with the political powers that be, um, what is their response to, to all of that? Um, they're all very reassuring. I mean, we have created, in our made regime, a closed system, right? Doctors mm-hmm. are required to report the practice and to report the particulars of every case. It takes them, I'm told, maybe 10 to 12 minutes to fill out the form that they fill out after they take the mic. And their their, medicine is a self-regulating profession. We've had tens of thousands of deaths by made in this country. There hasn't been a single one that has been questioned or where a doctor has been reprimanded or challenged on their interpretation of the law. And we have a monitoring system. But one of the principles of human rights monitoring is that it has to be independent. It has to be arm's length. Instead, we have the government presenting a very sanitized annual report in which they say, nothing to see here. Everything is going well. Yes, we're having a 30 to 35% increase every year in May deaths since we started six years ago. But that's okay. We're not worried. It's been the same every year. You know, the, the, the amount of information that you can get from the government reports is absolutely minimal. And when we challenged the justice minister last year with some of these cases, his response really was to say, well, I trust doctors, and Canadians trust doctors, and you should too. And, you know, that's not an acceptable answer. The court, in the case that uh, led to this change 
in the law was very clear. This would be a limited number, an extremely narrow exemption, and it would be scrupulously um, attended to and monitored and regulated. And we don't have that. We have something much more open and loose and unaccountable. And that's a real worry for people with disabilities in Canada. Talking to Professor Frise, uh, Order of Canada recipient, Professor of TM University, foremost um, voice for those in the disability community about the practice of MAID. And um, I have to say, I'm, I'm shocked. 30 to 35 percent increase year to year. This is, mm-hmm. um, and for many conditions that are not medical, we're talking about loneliness, yeah. we're talking about financial suffering, we're talking about housing that is inadequate, um, mm-hmm. and the answer is death. Um, I mean, this is outrageous um and and part of my part of what i'm thinking about catherine is aren't there medical ethics departments in universities isn't that a isn't that a discipline what if anything is uh are are folk that are in that discipline saying about this um yeah, I mean, is is there there? I hope that there's a kind of a wellspring, a an uprising of folk like you. Is is that the case? You know, Sherry, I would have hoped so, also. But there is, you know, we all know the story about the the frog in boiling water. This practice has become normalized very quickly, and the folks who are um, most enthusiastically uh, defending the law, uh, as I've said earlier, aren't really accountable. Um, and they're very confident, and they manage to reassure, uh, I suppose, the government, certainly the public, that there's nothing to worry about. But uh, yes, there are doctors of conscience who don't uh, perform the practice or who perform it, but only on people who are at the end of their lives in very severe um, medical distress. But those doctors are not the dominant voice. And more and more new physicians and new practitioners are being trained as they come up through their education that this is a standard medical procedure. And, um, you know, if your peers are okay with it, it does take a great deal of moral courage to speak out, even more to report where and when you see abuses. Well, and it, particularly if there's not independent um, oversight, oversight, uh, yeah. which is clearly missing. Now, that that seems to me a, a pretty minimal demand to yes. have. Uh, and response to that when you've spoken to authorities, I I think they're uh, defensive and uh, insistent, but they can tinker around the edges of their system. Oh, you want more data? We'll give you a little more data. But we have to protect everyone's privacy. So no, we can't tell you um, what kinds of conditions are in this broad category called other um, when we report the, the medical conditions. That, uh, that were the trigger for an assisted death. So we have a category called other, in which there are at least 40% of the deaths of people who are not at the end of their life. And we don't know. I mean, we've heard of some cases where the condition was hearing loss 
or the beginning of this in or your conditions that don't inherently cause the kind of suffering that should warrant death. But we don't get the details. Well, um, we have to end the interview there, but thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show, Professor Catherine Trizzi, Order of Canada, TM University professor, um, voice for those in the disability community about the practice of MAID. Hope you learned something. And talking about learning something, do let me know what you think of this show and other shows and, of course, ideas I always respond and always interested in what you have to say. And you don't have to wait uh, for fundraising to actually donate if you think this is a voice that you want to hear and these voices are voices that should be heard uh, on radio. So do let me know that um, too and do be generous. I also want to thank um, Alice out there on the other side of the glass and Sam who's uh, doing some stuff for the first time uh, in terms of radio tech. So it takes others to bring the show to you as well. Until the next time on the Radical Reverend Show and happy All Hallows Eve. People are strange when you're a stranger Faces look ugly when you're alone Women seem wicked when you're unwanted Streets are uneven when you're down When you're strange Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're strange People are strange when you're a stranger, faces look ugly When you're alone, women seem wicked When you're unwanted, streets are uneven When you're down When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange, alright, Try not to worry you I have seen things that you will never
ever see Leave it to memory me A shudder to breathe I FM is looking. This show is brought to you by CIUT Studios and made possible thanks to our friends at Metal Supermarkets. Metal Supermarkets is here to provide the solutions you need. Visit them at metalsupermarkets.com.